The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. As probably all of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddhist teachings. It's one of the five spiritual powers, as I mentioned in this morning's reflection, those powers being faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And it's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the seven factors of awakening. And those being mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. We'll begin this evening's um, discussion with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, and panya. And these words translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being essential and indispensable basis, the essential and indispensable basis for his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight. These form the, three form the branches of the mental development that is essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what leads one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through our direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These three profound insights are what lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he very often did, he starts with a question, and then he goes on to answer his own question. So, in the Buddha's words, his question is, if concentration Samadhi is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer to his question is, the mind is developed. And then his next question, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his question, all lust is abandoned. And then he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, wisdom is developed. And then he asks, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer is, all ignorance is abandoned. And so, concentration, samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are cultivated and developed throughout the years of our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, of virtue, deepen and mature, 
we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Intimately connected to the understanding of the practice, or the, the understanding that the practice of sila affords us, is the recognition and seeing of our self-identification in relationship to our habits of attraction, which include greed and clinging and attachment, our habits of aversion, which include worry, resistance, anger, fear, and our habits of confusion and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what could be called rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering, which is called samsara in Pali. These habits of mind are what also keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, or samatha, or samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The nature of things, the true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Iraq, dogs, Taos, Lumbini, thoughts, feelings, rain, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining, individual, separate essence as being without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle, as Annie spoke about last night, that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in concentration and mindfulness. In speaking to Ananda in the Kamata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question, and then again he proceeds to answer it. He says, What? is the purpose of skillful virtues. What is their reward? And he answers. He's speaking with Ananda at this point. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose. Joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose. Rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose. Serenity as its reward. Pleasure, or serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. 
Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhanship, to the end of suffering. And in speaking to his sangha, the monks and nuns, directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, and maybe also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this learning, with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha or samadhi or concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind that's attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, the process of gathering together the energy, the potentially very powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that this initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, strengthening one's ability to stabilize and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be just carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes might waft in to it from any of the sense door experiences or from one's own unconscious. So in light of this, we could ask ourselves this question. We could say to ourselves, does my mind control me or do I control my mind? Not an easy question to answer, actually, but a good question to ask. (laughs) So, uh, for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then the fact is that your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. Nothing to judge oneself about, but just recognize One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that by remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned. It's like any other skill. Practice, patient repetition, and then comes gradual development. The Vasudhimaga the 
profoundly detailed uh, Buddhist treatise on the process of purification. Uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process and the development and the act of concentration. So I'd like to share just a couple of these with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, and then absorbing into it. So a metaphor, descriptive descriptive metaphor from the Masudimaga for preliminary access and absorption concentration. There's another metaphor offered uh, in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery. And I'd like to share this one with you. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay holding, staying there with a very strong and very relaxed focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and sustaining energy. Totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of attention with one hand directly on the clay steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth and up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it and a bowl is formed. A bowl forms. (laughs) It's a really quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into the deeper states of samadhi, maybe, possibly, jhana states. the power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, calm. And really quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, or concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit about more about the basis and the process and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration Calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, and equanimity. Along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. Cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind, of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and 
unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. And this is not an easy process and it can be a very subtle process of coming to this un- these understandings. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, maybe the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostril area or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, simple concentration object. And you're anxious or you're worried during the process. Well, calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Why? Because worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought. One needs to be willing to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to what's sometimes called cut through thought. Even thoughts that might seem really very important in the moment. And it's important, very important actually, to note here that it isn't about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention, in seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what's intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Why? Because our mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions over and over again, thinking that whatever it is is really very important. I had such an experience, uh, a very mundane experience uh, of this during a three-month concentration jhana retreat that I sat with the very venerable Pawaksayadaw some years ago. For the first week or so of the retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three different loose teas and mix them in a tea ball uh, for myself, thinking that this was really important and seemingly very necessary, a great treat that I needed, wanted, and of course deserved. (laughs) Towards the end of the week, that week, I noticed um, a box of tea bags that were sitting on the counter uh, that were uh, of one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. It had been sitting there all along, but uh, the mind hadn't uh, connected to it with any clear awareness at all until that very moment. And then the thought came up once the mind connected with this box of tea. Do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, the answer came very quickly, no. No, it's not at all important. It's just merely habitual distraction. So that day, and then ongoing through the rest of the retreat, I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and enjoyed it quite, quite a bit, actually. Now, what happened after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously at times, throughout the rest of this three months of practice, the question would come up internally, is this really important? It would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and 
various thought patterns? And the answer was almost always, if not almost 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. Just a simple no. And so I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. Classically, the development of concentration, and maybe at some point jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, really seriously weakens the hindrances. It considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, are clearly manifest. The hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind, are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as profoundly weakened in the long term. Particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one <clears throat> if one's mind inclines towards <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a, a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of body and mind that hinder the development of concentration and that very uh, very much also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of applying the mind aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. And the Pali word for this process is vitaka. With the establishment of the mind on an object, again, such as the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, what is called the anapana spot or the touching spot, or the sensations, the movement and sensations of the breath in the belly. This eventually eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, the sustained application of attention, a continuous sustained attention on the object, the word in Pali is vichara. This eliminates uncertainty, eventually eliminates uncertainty and doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, resulting from the development, the developing purity of the mind and the heart. And the Pali word for this is piti, 
this brings a very delighted interest. Interest in and liking of the object of attention. And again, for just a simple example, such as the breath. With the development of deeper and deeper concentration. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily completely inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness, the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity actually is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful mental feeling, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, Restless, restlessness and agitation, regret and worry are completely temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, <clears throat> undistracted attention of uh, one-pointed focus, the one-pointed focus of deep concentration, the Pali word for this is ikagata, again occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of a deepening concentration, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana. This is the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, and equanimity, completely eliminating sensuous desire for anything during that particular time. As samadhi or concentration develops and moves along and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, of the heart, when at least some of these imperfections have been very clearly let go and temporarily abandoned, relinquished. At that time, one truly knows and gains a much fuller and much deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourself as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourself as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually become very tranquil. Now, the lack of attachment and personal identification in those moments is a very important point. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental distractions that are connected with gladness and joy, these experiences are removed with the maturing of tranquility. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. 
When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. We all know that. When pleasure is felt, again, without any attachment and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. So another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that has been developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of what in Pali is called raga. It's literally translated as unwholesome passion. And often used synonymously with desire and craving, attachment, clinging, which is the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used uh, regarding uh, this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. The Buddha used very practical examples. With the analogy being, of course, that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or an unwholesome emotion that has arisen or a provocative sense door input, but will allow these to just roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels, we could say, of uh, concentration that can be developed and serve our insight practice. The first of these is called momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another, after another, after another, after another. Our developing capacity to clearly connect with one object then another, then another, then another. Ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or the second level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration, but it's not It's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With access concentration, the mind is malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity 
and the, of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, excess concentration can actually be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, um, during the time that the mind is temporarily, during that time, that in that deeply absorbed uh, state of concentration, the mind is temporarily totally purified of all unwholesome mind states. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are, pro- are weakened, they're relatively profoundly weakened in the long run. Though they are not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana, it's only through insight practice that unwholesome and afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of concentration quite naturally takes place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to be able to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment, and less and less identification, but rather with an interested, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that actually is not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana or insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet and absorb into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring. In light of this, I'd like to um, share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't uh, bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking. It's said that the bodhisattva, and some of you may not know the meaning of this word, bodhi, breaking the word down, bodhi means, uh, translates as awakening or enlightenment, and sata is a being, a sata is a being who is dedicated uh, to or having a very strong intention to bodhi, to awaken. So it's said that the Bodhisatta, uh, Siddhartha Gautama at that time, asked himself, after uh, engaging in these extreme ascetic practices for six years, um, he asked himself, could there be, maybe could there be another path to enlightenment, another path to awakening? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his a childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. And that morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth. In, in that uh, time and in that culture, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. 
young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably, seated very comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. And he was observing the scene that was unfolding before him with very, a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children can sometimes give to things. Nothing really at all on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in wave-like furrows, noticing the shimmering heat coming up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off of the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. And he felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and they devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling and suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety and the joy and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat there alone, very clearly focused and deeply relaxed, under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was going on before him. And in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he sat quite still and silently, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice or attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything at all. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body and then remembering this particular boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisatta became very filled with energy and assurance that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in a deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, hatred, 
all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished or released or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or living through them or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling or trying to really trying very hard to let go of the painful states related to extreme austere practices or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. So, if you consider your own life, how many times in small, maybe even tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attached to and chosen to engage, say, in mental fantasies or various situations, activities, relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. And in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did, that this would somehow, somehow bring a sustaining joy and happiness and ease into your life, that these fantasies, these situations, these activities, this relationship would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness and ease into your life. Potentially a certain kind or a certain degree of mental strength may be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of liberation, it really can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experiences, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path towards liberation. And that, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's liberated, a heart, a mind, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the bodhisattva came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and in his case, jhana, was a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in his greater discourse to Sakaka in the Majjhima he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, 
I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the, the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, that he entered into the deep concentration of the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words, these are his words, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one by one through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't really so easy uh, to wander into for most of us. We very often have a mind made up. And often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know is not true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or what we must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in. It keeps us in conflict, keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with the present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom, understanding. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along across the great and often quite challenging river of life, carrying us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi, the current of concentration, possibly 
maybe possibly including states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, towards seeing the true nature of things, seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we really recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later after the story that I've just shared regarding the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama, to his diligent and very powerful approximately six and a half or seven years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and his inspired and amazing gift of clarity and his ability to uh, pass it along to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem and blossom from. And I'd like to uh, close the talk this evening with a poem by Mary Oliver that speaks uh, to this evening's topic in her quite unique and uh, beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet uh, moving way. And she calls this uh, particular poem Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled, sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those places, those magical places, wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away.
and let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.